Benjamin Crump, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me, Jake, and covering these important matters that need not be forgotten. Well, uh, of course, you represent the families of both uh, Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown, uh, two young black men who were killed under controversial circumstances, to say the least. Um, Now, George Zimmerman is suing you and Trayvon Martin's family for defamation and for conspiring against him. I'm curious, uh, is there anything you'd like to say about that? Other than the fact that it's a frivolous lawsuit that we don't want to give any attention to, we rather spend our time on very important legal matters like here in Flint, Michigan, where, you know, people have been poisoned and that it is very important that we have legal redress for that, not for somebody who's uh, seeking attention for whatever reason uh, in the most horrific ways. Uh, Obviously, it's very personal because I'm very close to Trayvon Martin's parents, Tracy and Sabrina, and uh, we have a lot to say, but we think that we do not want to give any attention to this completely uh, asinine pleading. Mm. Talk about your work representing these families and how it relates to combating racial inequity, generally speaking. Absolutely. You know, my hero was Thurgood Marshall. And Justice Marshall understood, I think, like many people of moral character, that we cannot let the enemies of equality continue to disenfranchise, marginalize, and dehumanize uh, poor people and especially people of color. What we have to do is try to make the American dream and the American uh, promise accessible to all people. It shouldn't matter what your zip code is. It should not matter your ethnicity or, you know, your sexual preference or who you choose to worship. If you are born as an American citizen, just by drawing your first breath as an American, then the Constitution belongs to you. And that's what is so important that we don't forget about Flint, Michigan. And what breaks my heart is whether it's fighting uh, for the lives of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, 12-year-old Tamir Rice, Botham John, uh, the list just goes on and on. Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, uh, Sandra Bland. It's no different than fighting for the lives of the young people in Flint who the science tells us are going to be affected by this legalized genocide when the laws that are supposed to protect us are in a way being used to kill us because nobody's been held accountable for our children's lives and their future and their opportunities at being able to live out the fulfillment of their destiny that God has for them and have an opportunity at the American dream that's equal to anybody else. And when we think about Flint Had this happened in a more affluent community, a more whiter community, it would be a national catastrophe. I mean, lightning would strike, uh, thunder would roll, and heads would roll. But because it's a poor majority, minority community, it's almost as if their lives really don't matter that much. Their children's brain development isn't really that important. And so we have to object to that and say, no, that's not America. 
America, we're better than that. And so whether I'm uh, uh, talking about the issues in my book, we're trying to hold a mirror to America's face to say we can do better, or whether when we're at the rally on Saturday and Sunday in Flint, Michigan, uh, we're going to be talking to the community to say, yeah, we can do better together. We cannot let America forget about the tragedy that happened in Flint, and especially to uh, people of color who are so distrusting of the legal system, and they have every right to be, Jake, but to tell them that our children matter too much not to make sure that they have competent representation and fair compensation because the science has told us that there are going to be long-term effects on their brains because of this poisoning that happened, I believe, willfully and wanton by the people who were supposed to be looking out for them. To talk about to these two things here, the one-on-one individual violence, uh, physical violence uh, against people of color in this country, something that you are known for in your in your uh, cases representing these two families, and the systematic violence toward people of color. There are some people that might see those as two different things. I suspect you see those as part of the same thing. Certainly, and it is very interesting because— uh, Jake, that's the case I make in my book, Open Season, The Legalized Genocide of Colored People. And I I remember one of the main reasons that I wrote the book, even though HarperCollins had been asking me for a couple of years to pen uh, the book, I I didn't want to just write a book to write a book. I only wanted to write a book that I felt needed to be written. And when I was in Ferguson, Missouri, in the aftermath of the killing of Michael Brown, the 18-year-old unarmed uh, black teen who the police officer killed in broad daylight, uh, 14 eyewitnesses said his hands was up. And that's when the uh, clarion call, hands up, don't shoot, went worldwide. And you had the Ferguson uprising where the young people, the Black Lives activists, the Black Lives Matter activists, uh, and all these young people, it wasn't just black people, it were uh, white college students, Hispanic college students out there, and they refused to remain silent. They refused to let them sweep Michael Brown's death under the rug. And I remember specifically, there was this young man uh, who was out there, and he was fearless. The governor had called in the National Guard, and they came in with all their military gear and uh, uh, assault rifles, uh, and it was almost as if they were declaring war on an American city. It was unbelievable to see. But this young man walked right up to the uh, National Guard who had their assault rifles trained on him, sent him and he walked where his face was practically touching the tip of the assault rifle, and he was yelling while all of us were out there, and uh, he said, go ahead and kill me now while all the cameras and everybody can see because y'all are going to kill us anyway when the cameras go away, so kill us now so the world can see how you all are killing us. And I remember thinking, he's right. It is important for the world to see how they're killing us. 
but not just how they're killing us with uh, these bullets from these high-profile police shootings, but more poignantly, how they're killing us every day in every city, in every state, in every courtroom in America with these trumped-up felony convictions. Uh, And it's not so much just the trumped-up felony convictions. It's also all these myriad of other ways they're killing us when they legalize or sanitize the injustices. Uh, I I remember, in trying to answer your question in a, a roundabout way, when I go give these speeches, I talk about Ben Franklin's quote. When Ben Franklin says democracy is like two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch. You know, Jake, Mm -hmm. you're a smart guy. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out how that is going to turn out. The concept of tyranny of the majority. Exactly. And so Ben Franklin says, but liberty is making sure that that lamb is well armed to protest that vote. And so what we have to do is make sure young lambs in communities of color are well-armed to protest the school-to-prison pipeline, that they're well-armed to protest voter suppression, that they're well-armed to protest environmental racism, where we would see children living in south-central Los Angeles have a third of the lung capacity as children living in Santa Monica, California, because we make it legal for these toxic, polluting, poisonous uh, factories to exist within breathing space of where our children live and go to school and play every day. Uh, we have to make sure they're well armed to protest the racist Jim Crow laws like Stand Your Ground. We have to make sure they're well armed to protest the prison industrial complex that would see when you're a black person go to prison, it's different. When you're a brown person, go to prison. It's different in many regards than when white people go to prison because, you know, most people when they go to prison or jail, they're only worried about losing their constitutional rights. But when minorities, especially women of color, go to prison, not only do they have to worry about losing their constitutional rights, but Jake, they also have to worry about losing their reproductive rights. As late as 2014, in the state of California, you have documentation of where black women and Hispanic women are being coerced into forced sterilization. And so when you look at the individual cases, how they're killing us, and you look at the systematic ways they're killing us, to me, if you're the person getting killed, it's all the same. And that's what we're trying to teach our young people. They whether they kill you with a bullet or whether they kill you softly with a felony conviction or slowly with environmental racism like they're doing in Flint, it's still death. And we have to stand up and scream from the top of the mountain that our children's lives matter, that Flint matters, that we have to make sure that everybody is held accountable and that these children are cared for. 
You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer, and I'm speaking with Benjamin Crump. He's a civil rights attorney and author of a new book called Open Season, Legalized Genocide of Colored People. He's in Michigan to kick off a nationwide campaign to bring attention to more than a million Americans who do not have access to clean drinking water. He's also known as an attorney who represented the families of both Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. You mentioned environmental racism a couple times in that. Uh, here in Detroit, we have one of the most polluted zip codes in the entire country in southwest Detroit. Uh, and this is something that you're really focusing now. And that's one of the reasons you're here in Michigan. Talk about your concentration right now on environmental concerns and how they relate to racism and uh, how that's going to play out in this rally in Flint uh, this week. Yeah, it's really profound when you think about it, um, as bad as the killing of, you know, uh, Botham John was, as bad as the killing of Laquan McDonald, as bad as the killing of uh, Eric Gardner, as bad as all these killings, in many ways, environmental racism is far worse than police brutality or any of these other individualized killings because environmental racism is generational. I mean, it not only affects you, but it affects your children. And it can affect your children's children. And so when you look at the horrible statistics that the number of Americans living near facilities that store, process, hazardous chemicals, it's so disproportionate. I mean, with black people, it's 75% higher than the general population. With uh, Latino community, it's 60% higher. And so I say that to say that it always appears that no matter what the situation is, Jake, poor people of color always get the most of injustice and the least of justice. And so whatever blessings, whatever education, whatever influence that God has blessed me with, I want to try to bring attention not just to these uh, cases where the police uh, are racist and, you know, um, profiling us and kill us, but also where the powers that be that are far more, far more calculating than police uh, profile us and uh, discriminate against us and in many ways commit a, a legalized genocide against us because when they allow these polluters to exist and then the local governments and the state governments and the federal governments work in concert with them to sanitize their conduct, in a way, they're condoning it. They're being co-conspirators. In the law, we would call it aiding and abetting. And so why is it that when something like this happens, uh, or some uh, little poor person of color in America are charged with aiding and abetting, they throw the book at them, and they may not have committed violence against anybody. It may be something as, in my mind, trivial as selling a a bag of marijuana versus when you look at this here, it's far more 
horrific. But yet, nothing happens to them. I bring up the point about selling marijuana because if you really want to illustrate the the just blatant, vivid racism and discrimination, you only have to go to this fake war on drugs that really was a way of criminalizing and populating the prison industrial complex with uh, poor people of color, what I call uh, younger, stronger slaves. And it had to do with, when you think about what the prosecutors and what the police said over and over again uh, about this war on drugs when you had poor people of color uh, being charged, even though you had little white boys and girls doing the same thing, a lot of times they got slaps on the wrist. But when these black children and these brown children and young people would sell drugs, they would always say, we got to lock them up and we got to throw away the key. Let's lock them up and throw away the key. We got to be hard on crime. That's what they kept saying, because we got to send a message. We got to send a message. That's what they kept saying, because they're poisoning the community. And that's what they kept saying. And then we come to Flint, Michigan, where they actually did poison the community. And how many people go to jail? Zero. And you got tens of thousands of poor black and brown people sitting in prison for 10, 20, sometimes life in prison for selling marijuana, the same marijuana that has been legalized now in most states in America. And so you now have white men and the government who are going to make billions and billions of dollars from selling marijuana, where when you have black people selling marijuana, brown people, I guess what you essentially have is the American government now is going to be making money from selling weed so they can pay their bills. But when you have black and brown people uh, making money from selling weed to pay their bills, they put all of us in prison. And so what we are saying is objection. You can't make a profit, America, for selling marijuana until you let all these black people and these brown people and any other people out of prison for selling marijuana because it's just hypocrisy. It's just racism and it's discriminatory that you all now get to make billions of dollars, but yet when black and brown people were just trying to survive and pay their bills, doing exactly what you're doing now, you call them criminals. Hmm. That's a big issue in Michigan right now. We just legalized marijuana as a state, and uh, part of the conversation is now, should we go back and expunge the records of people who've been convicted? Uh, and that is a huge conversation right now at the state capitol here in Detroit, uh, a city that has um, for now said no to legalized marijuana retail stores. Uh, part of the conversation there is carving out uh, space for people to get into that market here in Detroit who've been disproportionately affected by the war on drugs. So that's a conversation that's very pertinent locally here. Um, I just wanted to end with you uh, describing if uh, people come out to this rally in Flint, what can they expect to see? Well, what they can expect is to have a very engaging and personal conversation about how we have to stand up for our children 
how we have to speak up for our children and have to, we have to fight for our children because they're our children. And if we're not willing to stand up for our children in our community, nobody else is going to be willing to stand up for them. And we're going to also offer them opportunities to get tested to see if uh, their children were affected by the lead poisoning. Also, we're going to talk to them about why they have to be engaged in the process. There are still 8,000 children and 40,000 adults that don't have legal representation that hasn't brought forth a claim. And what you don't want them to do is to get left behind uh, because what the science tells us is this is real. And so what I'm going to be talking to them, and I grew up in a, a community much like Flint, we were probably far uh, poor, had less resources than Flint in Lumberton, North Carolina, by a single mother raising three boys living in the projects. So I can relate uh, to what many of them go to when they say it's about trying to keep food on the table. It's trying to keep a roof over your head. It's trying to keep lights on uh, and heat in this cold weather. But it's also about giving your children hope for the future, not only putting food in their stomach, but putting hope in their heart and education in their minds. And so this starts with acknowledging that we have a serious issue we have to deal with over the lead poisoning in Flint and that we have to make sure that our children do have competent representation and they get fair compensation because it may make a world of difference of whether they're even able to uh, learn in the future and deal with these issues that they might not understand why they're not being able to ha uh, have a disciplined attention span, why they can't learn at the level other children are learning at. It's because, based on the science, when you have lead poisoning, it stunts the development of the brain, and that's very real. And they have to say, this is an issue we need to deal with today. We can't put it off for 5, 10 years when we see the effects. We have to start preparing for our children's future today. The future belongs to those who prepare for it. And so at that rally, we're going to be talking about preparing for the future of our children and the legacy of our community. Hmm. Uh, Benjamin Crump, civil rights attorney, author of the new book called Open Season, Legalized Genocide of Colored People. Thank you so much for joining us here on Detroit Today. Hey, I really appreciate your time.